Hello folks, welcome to episode 4 of Champs at the Lit, a podcast by two lifelong friends with a shared passion for books. I'm Max, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mark. Hey guys. Uh, so today, uh, Mark and I are going to be talking about the book Aurora by Kim Stanley Robinson. Um, and before we get into sort of the details of the book and the basic sort of storyline, um, I want to talk a bit about the author, uh, Kim Stanley, first. So, Mark, yeah. uh, you're you're the one that introduced me to his work, um, so why don't you uh, talk a bit about him? Yeah, I, it's, it's one of those funny things where I stumbled across his work, and then after stumbling across it, I started seeing it everywhere and realized that he's actually like a pretty important figure in science fiction that... Even though I, I felt like I read a decent amount of science fiction, I had been entirely unaware of. Um, so I was scrolling through the Overdrive app for those who are familiar with it, uh, where you can download audiobooks and ebooks from a library or like rent them and download them. And uh, I was just going through latest uh, acquisitions in science fiction and saw Aurora, which is the book we're talking about today, mm-hmm. and read it and was really captivated by it. Um, loved the science and the storytelling and the world he created and the ideas that he he dealt with. Uh, And then from there, started reading his other stuff. So he's most known for the Mars trilogy, um, which is Red Mars, Blue Mars, Red Mars, Green Mars, then Blue Mars. Um, And I think two of those won the Hugo Award. He has a couple sort of lineages of uh, his writing. Part of it is that he's very West Coast, uh, he thinks a lot about nature and ecology. So, mm-hmm. you know, very different than, like, cyberpunk stuff. Um, he's more similar to, like, Ursula K. Le Guin or Frank Herbert. Um, and he also sort of styles himself as a utopian science fiction author. So rather than just thinking about, like, here are all the awful things that could happen, um, he tries to think through, like, reimagine the future and the different ways that society could formulate itself. And a lot of that is related to his, like, graduate work. I think he has a PhD, uh, and he did most of his studies with, um, like kind of Marxist, um, literary critics. Um, and so, yeah, he has kind of interesting perspective there, but he lives in California. He spends a fair amount of time hanging out at like the Jet Propulsion Lab and Caltech and, you know, UC Santa Barbara and various like UC schools. Uh, and so, yeah, I think he, he hangs out with the scientific community and has pretty good grasp of, uh, scientific concepts, although some of it is, you know, obviously debated because it is fiction. Yeah. I, I think a common theme in his science fiction is that bad stuff happens, but ultimately things work out in the end. Um, you know, it, like Mark was saying, it's more in the utopian versus the dystopian vein. Like around the time that I uh, listened to Aurora, uh, I also listened to uh, The Robe by Cormac McCarthy. <laughs> and <laughs> You know, that's like the total, you know, opposite end of, uh, you know, sort of hellscape future. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Some of his work, which is sort of similar to Aurora, is just like we go off to a new place and let's imagine what we could accomplish in this new place or like how society or humanity might change, which Mm -hmm. is very different than saying like the earth is going to end and how do we solve it? Although he does have a couple of books that are more in that vein. Right. Right, and his most recent book, The Ministry for the Future, is about climate change and sort of imagining how, basically how humanity might sort of engineer its way out of climate change. Right. Um, if we all like came together and actually right. worked, collaborated, and, you know, the problem. 
in that book too, again, you know, lots of bad stuff happens, you know, millions, millions of people die, <laughs> you know, from the effects of climate change, for example, but ultimately without spoiling things, I guess I am, but you know, things work out in the end for, you know, most of the protagonist and, uh, earth and, you know, humankind yeah. as a whole. Which is, yeah. And then that's a spoiler if you know nothing about him, but if you've read any of his work before you like sort of know he's an optimist by nature, he's not going right. to write a book where the world ends. Right. So now that we've talked about um, Kim Stanley Robinson, his work, and sort of his background and his role in the uh, science fiction community, let's talk about Aurora itself. Um, so lay out a little basic information about the book if you haven't read it. But again, uh, Mark and I are going to be spoiling it. So if you haven't read it and you care about that, I guess stop listening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but the, the basic outline is that... Um, it's it's set on this like multi-generational starship it's supposed to have left earth um in 2445 or not earth i think it it's actually supposed to have let what like the sort of outer belt system of the solar system right yeah um and it's like 159 years from the beginning of the ship's journey to the beginning of the book um has already occurred um on on the ship uh, yeah, obviously on the more ship. time has passed yeah. For Earthlings or Saturnians, or I think it was, I think it was the Saturnians who yeah, I think funded the project. You you learn that out later. You know, you sort of just jump into life on the ship, and they're basically dealing with the problems of, you know, having been on this ship for so long, things are starting to break down. They've got like two more decades to go before they uh, reach uh, Tau Ceti, which is the like Earth-like planet or sort of Earth-like solar system that they're trying to reach um and a lot of the early part of the book and i mean really throughout the entire book it's all about you know what are the problems that you might encounter on a journey like this and how do you sort of overcome uh those problems um now mark you had this observation that you think basically the story gets less compelling as as it goes on yeah, and I've I've been trying to think about why I felt this way, but when I first read it, and then, you know, so, yeah, I read this, I don't know, two years ago, three years ago, uh, and then now revisiting it, when I came back to revisit it, my memory of, like, the things that stuck most in my mind were earlier in the story, and then as the story went on, I had remembered fewer and fewer things, um, and I think there there are a couple reasons for that, so... Uh, I guess to like in terms of timeline, they travel to Tau Ceti. They try to establish a colony uh, mm-hmm. on Tau Ceti, or I guess on Aurora. They call the moon that they try to settle on Aurora, um, and then it doesn't work. They have like a kind of mini civil war situation where they're trying to decide whether or not to stay and make it work or to go back home. They then return back to Earth, and then there's um, some explanation of like what happens when they get back to Earth. Um, and yeah, I think the that initial part is what was really the most interesting to me. I think there's a lot of character development. You learn a lot about Freya. Um, you learn a lot about Devi. Uh, they right. their Freya. characters seem to sort of evolve. Uh, and I think the character development kind of just ends uh, once you get into you know the colony and the civil war and stuff. And part of that may be necessary, right? Like because he he goes from telling kind of a micro story to telling a macro story. Like it's harder to to maintain character development when you're trying to tell the story of 2000 people on a starship. 
because um, you like at, at that point he's telling the story of like well they tried to colonize and here's why that didn't work and now they're having these big debates and so um, I think it, it's a, it's a genuine problem that is hard to solve so I don't fault him for it per se but I do think it makes the story less interesting because there aren't individual characters uh, like you don't get a sense for like what what the civil war was like for people in the same way that you like really get a sense for what it was like for Freya as a child to grow up on this ship in the first part of the book right and sort of her um she has a difficult relationship with her mother uh Devi who is she's sort of like the unofficial chief engineer of the ship um and develops this interesting relationship with like the ship's AI um yeah, like that that evolves you see Devi and you sort of get the depth of her frustration at things you get her interactions with the ship mm-hmm. but then yeah I mean just to take the Civil War as kind of an example um, like he sort of says people starve to death it would like sucked or whatever but like you don't you don't you don't like spend a chapter living with the people who are starving and experience what their emotions are in the same way that you spend chapters living with Devi and understanding her emotions about how the ship functions and stuff right yeah that's a I'm trying to think. I think maybe the Civil War chapter or chapters, they're told basically from the ship's perspective on things. I mean, for for most of the book, the ship is kind of the narrator for the story. Yeah. Um, but like in the earlier chapters, when it's more focused on Freya, her sort of development as a um, like first child and adolescent than adult um, and her relationship with Devi, it's more of a sort of personal um you spend sort of more time like in their head, sort of thinking their thoughts, um, yeah. versus later when the ship is narrating what's happening with the Civil War. Um, you get a bit less of that. Yeah, I think also that this is true for a lot of his writing. I don't know a lot, but it's definitely it's definitely something that I notice in the the Ministry for the Future, which I listened to um, more recently. Um, that I just I don't think he's that great at character development. I think he's much better at uh, sort of world building mm-hmm. and um, sort of thinking creatively about you know for example with the ship, you know what are the sort of scientific constraints for a ship like that and what are the problems that um, the people might encounter and how might they you know overcome overcome those problems. Um, yeah, oh, I agree. He's not stellar at. Uh character development but to take the mars trilogy for instance there is a lot more character development that happens so like sax the scientist right becomes a very different person by the end of the books than he was in the beginning um and michelle the the psychoanalyst also you learn a lot about him and his character and certainly your perception of his character changes over time um i think one of the reasons that happens though is because he's able to focus on different characters over time um Whereas here, you mostly just focus on Freya, but then if he wants to talk about something that Freya is not directly involved in, he like doesn't really have any characters you're invested in to do that with because Devi dies, you're, and then mm-hmm. the ship is narrating, and you like kind of get to know Ewan, so you like get some investment in like what he's doing, but like I don't think his character is very well developed. You really have a sense for like what motivates him or how he thinks about his life or the world or anything. You right. mostly care about him because Freya cares about him. Um, and so I think I think the the way he's he's addressed this problem in his other books was reasonably effective. I think there are probably better ways of doing it, but I, th- I like as a reader it worked for me. Uh, and then this time because he just focuses on Freya and the ship, uh, it I think yeah it just becomes less interesting over time. 
Yeah. I also I, I also think the science is less interesting. To me, the most by, by far the most interesting scientific problem they, they face is the island biology stuff. I think that's super interesting. Uh, and that's mostly something that you think about in the first part of the book. Uh, and it gets like explained and dealt with. And then uh, they talk about it a little bit as they're going home because they're running out of various minerals and elements. Right. Um, but like they don't really solve the problem. They just like come up against it a bunch of times and they're like, well, let's just hibernate. Um, which yes. like is, 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 is fine. Just again, like in terms of like my enjoyment and like how much my brain is working with and like getting a lot out of the story. Uh, I, I was far more engaged in the earlier sections. Yeah, I think um, earlier on there's a <laughs> there's a lot there's a lot of discussion about like metabolic balance, like looping various elements, and you know what are the constraints on life because the way the ship is designed, it's got these different biomes that are you know sort of supposed to replicate Earth-like biomes, and you're you know you're cycling materials, but there's always a little bit of waste and you know things that can't get used, and they're trying to you know solve these problems, and also the ship is breaking down, and I think you're right. Like, once you get to the end of the book and, like, the solution that they hit upon, like, once they realize that they're not going to be able to um, colonize uh, Tau Ceti, they uh, decide, you know, well, half of them decide, or maybe it's not quite half, but a portion of them decide to go back to Earth, and they do that by hibernation. And it sort of seems like a convenient, almost like a... (laughs) It's like the, kind of yeah, thing. it's it's like the most fantastic element of the book as well. Oh, uh, you know, suddenly we've developed uh, you know this hibernation technology that we can yeah. do th- do the return return journey um, and still be alive at the end. Yeah, it does. It does come a little bit out of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, so I think the the science overall is interesting. Um, it like, yeah, I, again, I think the most interesting stuff is the island biology that you know the bacteria are evolving faster than the animals. Um, right. And the, the humans are like slowly getting dumber because they're, well, it's not really clear. Like they don't really know they're getting shorter and they're getting less intelligent. And it's not right. clear if they're reverting to the mean or if it's because of like malnutrition, like metabolic imbalance stuff, because certain trace, like certain elements that are really important are hard to manufacture. And they, you know, as they get utilized by bodies they, or the soil or whatever it is, they disappear and so they run out of stuff or they have too much stuff yeah uh so one of <laughs> one of your other i don't know critiques of the book or things that maybe you find a bit frustrating is that um you know kim stanley Robinson, he does a good job with developing freya's character as like a child and an adolescent and like a young adult mm-hmm. but then after a certain point her her character sort of becomes stagnant so why did you end up sort of feeling that way yeah, I, I feel like I should caveat first of all that I do like this book and I do like most of the books we read and somehow yeah. somehow a lot of our conversations tend to be about my my complaints about these books. Uh, I think maybe I, just because I, that generates conversation, but I, I don't know what it is. But you, uh, I guess when, when I read something, I it's just it's less. I don't know. I I just I don't. It just doesn't really pop into my head like oh you know this isn't really well developed or, you know, this is a real plot hole. I don't know. I think so. So, so the way this one came up for me, I guess the, the, the first thing that came up for me was that Freya as a child is written really well. She feels really believable. The stuff that she says is stuff that children say. And then when she encounters Ewan, 
like as a kid, he keeps doing and saying things that just doesn't feel like a child to me at all. Mm. Uh, and this is, this is something that like I, I encounter in movies and stuff too. I think it, it can be really hard to write children well because they say bizarre things. They will say really mature things at times that you don't expect or use vocabulary that is like more mature. But then at other times they're like very, you know, they use things wrong or they, anyways, like it's partly like grammar structure, but it's partly also just like how their brain works and how they think about the world. And Freya, definitely the way she grappled with her parents' interactions and her own identity uh, felt felt very real to me. And then some of the way Ewan talked and the things that he did just didn't feel real to me. And I, I don't have specific examples. Right. Um, but then, yeah, so I think she goes through this interesting process of like realizing that she's a little bit slower than other kids and that her parents have held her back and right. feeling well, like yeah. she's inadequate and being told, you know, more or less like you're not good at stuff that is important. And, and, yeah, and then right. over... She, yeah, she, she has, she's basically, she's not, uh, <laughs> she's not very good at like the science, the like mathematical stuff. Um, right. Like the, or at least that's what she's sort of told that, you know, she can't yeah. sort of understand. Uh, I mean, she, yeah, she gets held back in school. Right. And she she has a hard time passing the tests. Uh, when they evaluate her, she's underperforming for her age. And so I she's guess. in classes with kids who are much, much younger and feels really awkward about that because she's big, she's older. Uh, she doesn't know why she's in these classes, but she knows that like people teach her concepts and she has to hear them over and over again and they just won't stick. Right. I guess um, that's true. Yeah. And I mean, it, it is true that most of it seems to be science and math stuff, but I think that's partly just because as far as we know, that's all they learn. Like, I don't know if they learn earth geography or history or anything like that. Um, right. right. But yeah. And I think, I think, and then there's this whole process of her going on her sort of, I forget what they call it. Their walkabout. Room yeah. Springer. Yeah, that is sort of what it's like. Yeah, it's like a wandering around the ship for. Um, I don't think she she does it for three years, and I can't remember if that's supposed to be like the standard. You know, everybody. Does I got it the for sense that hers was a little longer. Yeah, but yeah, it's a kind of coming of age ritual where you get right. to go wander around and experience life in different places. And through that, she comes to realize what her strengths are. Right, so she has this you know sort of self knowledge or, or self realization. That like, hey, I'm actually really good at interacting with other people. I'm really good at, um, you know, getting people to talk to me and explain their problems. I can remember all these different people. I can bring people together. I can come up with kind of social solutions. Like she has a really high EQ um, that, you know, I think compensates in ways for what she feels like is, you know, potentially a lower IQ. Uh, and anyway, so I think that's all really interesting. And then as soon as they hit uh, Aurora it just sort of stops and it's like whoever she was at the point where she had just finished her walkabout just kind of freezes or like when Debbie dies or whenever it is like she is that person. She has had these insecurities. Now she's come to this realization and she has these opinions and then she just like stops and doesn't really evolve that much. You do see her develop some really strong opinions, but there's not a great deal of explanation as to why. Like she's totally convinced that they have to go home, but mm. like, other than, like, there being some sense that Debbie would have wanted them to go home, it's, like, not really clear. Anyway, it, it, I just felt like we sort of lost her inner life and that her inner life didn't evolve. And then at the, by the end of the book, she's, like, 50 or 60 years old. And the way she talks and moves and thinks is identical to the way she did in her 20s. Uh, and, I, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, again, this is, like, you know, I'm no writer. I could not have done it any better. Um, I think it's a really hard thing to do, but it just, as a reader, didn't feel authentic to me that she had evolved. It felt like she kind of stagnated. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know exactly how old she's supposed to be. I mean, obviously, she's like, 
she's like over a hundred in in real life, but I don't know. Like as a character, does she get past like fifty? I think so. Does she? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, the the way she, I think the the ship sort of describes her as that she becomes a sort of surrogate mother for yeah. like the people of the ship. Um. But yeah. Um, you know, that didn't so much stick out to me, but I do think overall he does a better job of sort of developing her, her character as a child and sort of thinking about how a child would interact with this world and sort of the confusing elements that she doesn't totally understand. And also that you like you as a reader don't totally understand because you're just sort of thrown into the world and then, then you just sort of pick up, you know, bits and pieces here of, you know, um, what are the problems on the ship and, you know, what are the, uh, yeah. um, and even stuff about, like, the history of the ship. Um, you know, like, you only learn, like, much later on that uh, there were actually two ships that uh, were launched off of Titan. And that there was this, like, civil war earlier on in, like, the 68th year of the journey. Um, yeah, there's this... The ship has this... Uh, it's, like, structured forgetting, which I think mm-hmm. is, like, an interesting concept... Um, and sort of an interesting idea for like the, I don't know, the inhabitants of the ship is like, uh, <laughs> or like to make that decision, like, uh, you know, you, there's this, uh, really troubled time and you basically solve it by, you know, trying to forget about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is like slightly solved through this like high tech solution of like putting short term amnesia gas, like piping it into any room where people start talking about stuff right. they shouldn't. Right, <laughs> that's and right. I forgot like, about like, that. Yeah, like, wake up five minutes later and like forget that they had ever stumbled upon some topic. Right. They were It's you know doesn't um, totally make sense. But yeah, I mean, it is. It is. It's like sort of the opposite of like a truth and reconciliation commission, right? right. It's like a, a non truth and reconciliation right. commission. Yeah, man, it doesn't it doesn't work out like it didn't happen? You just yeah, sweep it, it under the rug. Doesn't work out in the end. Um, you know, it all comes bubbling back up. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it seems like it works for a little while, but then they get yeah. to the point where I mean, it's, it works it's for important over... information for them, so they yeah. don't repeat the mistakes of the past. Like you have to know the past. I mean, it's, it's a trite like why history is important kind of lesson. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Um, so, what did you think about the ship as like the narrator slash as an AI slash as a character? Because I actually think the ship, like the way that he develops the ship's sort of intelligence and like understanding of the world and the way in which it's interacting with um the inhabitants of the ship is pretty interesting uh, yeah, I, yeah I, 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 I found it compelling but i don't know if you if i you agree yeah I, I found it quite compelling i really enjoyed it um i think it's fun to yeah like you see Devi having these interactions with an ai that at first seems similar to like an alexa like it's not you know it can do very advanced like mathematical computations but right. it's not like giving her back like it's not a good interlocutor and then uh by the end of the story yeah like it's fully telling the story and you can you you get to watch how this happens which is that debbie says implement this algorithm like do more of this stuff become more recursive like go research this stuff and and add it into your own code yeah i mean she i I guess it's not explicitly said this way but the book is sort of supposed to be like uh you know the ship's narrative account of the of of the ship's journey and its inhabitant, right? right? For Debbie's that, instructions. You know, yeah. that that's why we're sort of learning about it is because the ship is telling the story. Right. Um, yeah, and there's this whole section where the ship 
I mean, it's I think I think it's a fun way for him to explore the challenges that an author faces, which right. is is I think pretty common in in like good literature that there will be some kind of you know whether meta commentary or like slipped in the author will want to talk about like how how is narrative constructive how or yeah. constructed how how do you write sentences and so you like the ship is literally talking about like how do you write sentences well and one of the things you do i forget whether they're like uh some particular type of clause which is like a wherefore or a however like mm. those types of clauses are really important and then every every so often in the narrative then she'll like the ship will be like ah i threw one of these clauses in see um and then also that like it's really hard to tell a story about two thousand people or even more over the course of generations. How do you do that? You're inevitably going to leave a ton of. I mean, she talks about it in terms of like compression algorithms, right? Which you use right. for images. Like, there's no such thing as a lossless compression here, and even like a lossy compression. How do you decide what the key elements are? Um, which I think, yeah, is like a you know really interesting problem in history and in fiction writing as well. Uh, that is developed this way and, and then her solution and this is debbie's suggestion is to just focus on one character which she does with freya which then yeah sort of gives the big picture explanation for like how we arrive at this novel which is that this ai has to tell a story about the history of the ship and chose to right. focus it on freya right the, the the way in which he creates the ship's ai i think is interesting the way in which he develops that you know character um because it is i don't know I, I would say apart from apart from freya the ship is really... I mean, the, there are other important characters. There's Debbie, her mother. There's um, Badem, her father, um, Ewan, um, and others. But it's really like the ship and Freya are, you know, the two most sort of important protagonists in the entire story. Yeah, I think that's uh, right. What about... Um, well, we, we sort of talked about this already, that... Uh, what, one of the sort of interesting ideas that, uh, you know, there was this earlier civil war in the 68th year of the ship's journey. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the ship slash the inhabitants of the ship make a decision to, you know, forget about that event, basically. Um, but then, you know, it comes, all, it comes all up again when they try to uh, colonize Tau Ceti and realize that they can't do it. Mm-hmm. Um and then there's this, you know, violent civil war between the factions. Um, it, it starts over, you know, whether to readmit the uh, the people um, that may or may not be infected back into the ship. Um, I think, first of all, on the, like, ship note, I think it's interesting, and it, like, makes a lot of sense that the ship is the one to step in and kind of address this crisis. Sure. Right? That it's, its job now is to, like, help the humans more than it, they can help themselves by helping them get to a structure and then like setting down basically the ship starts being like, I am the sheriff. The rule of law must be respected. Um, I think it's, I don't know, like realistically it would be really hard for an AI to like decide what the rule of law is. Um, and also you presume that they would have coded in like pretty thoroughly coded into the AI, what it is and is not allowed to do with respect to humans. Kind of like, Isaac Asimov right. style. Right. Uh, and that doesn't seem to have happened. And so it's like a little bit scary that like right, the, the ship... AI just gets to evolve and gets to make yeah. whatever decisions it wants. And we're fortunate in that it evolved in a good way and like loves humans and loves Devi. But like, what right. if it didn't? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, the, the ship sort of ends up feeling like, you know, oh, but yeah, very protective of the inhabitants, yes. its inhabitants, you know, thinking that they're, you know, sort of a part of it, basically. But I think you're right that you could definitely develop the story 
in a much, I don't know, kind of more frightening way in which, you know, the ship, you know, maybe thinks it's doing the best thing for people, but, uh... Yeah, and I think this is, like, a tricky problem that he does a pretty good job of, which is, like, AI developing emotion kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, I think you, you had this written down that, like, you know, the ship says love is a kind of giving of attention, mm -hmm. and that the ship has been instructed to give so much attention to these people that at some point you, you that is part of your routine to care about and to give a lot of attention to people. And I think that, you know, this happens in our lives too, that you, as you spend a lot of time with someone and as it becomes part of your routine to pay attention to them and their thoughts and their, you know, desires and to help them with those things that at some point you like that just sort of habitually forms itself into a form of love. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, or obviously sort of we, identifying with the other individual or like, you know, with somebody that isn't you, I guess. Or, you right. Know. Yeah. And obviously, like, we're, we're hardwired with empathy in a way that, like, an AI maybe isn't. So, like, I'm, yeah, I don't know. Like, it, it may not be a 100% realistic characterization of how AI can become sentient and have emotions, uh, right. which is probably not going to happen. But I think it's, yeah, it does a pretty good job of that. Um, so, yeah, on the, like, Civil War thing, uh, it seems like every Kim Stanley Robinson book has some moment of political crisis that is manifest in, like, a mass movement that is like roughly is like extremely chaotic and often somewhat violent um and i think i'm torn about this on the one hand they make for like interesting moments and are interesting ways of thinking about things and i think the first time i read it was really compelling but right. now that he puts it in every single novel that i've read uh it's starting to feel a little bit like a narrative crutch like figure out some other way for people to realize a problem and solve it than for them to all simultaneously like i don't know get into a big kerfuffle about it <laughs> i guess uh i don't know i i guess i haven't read as much of his science fiction so you know maybe that didn't stick out to me as much um and i will say like the way that the civil war develops like it, it sort of makes sense that like that's the point at which um you know violence sort of breaks out in the ship because like apart from you know that there's really very little you know, there's there's a little there's like a conflict between characters and things like that, but you know, no no kind of violence like up to this point. Yeah, but this kind of like the kind of like mass mobilization just is very unusual historically, right? Like almost everybody in the ship seems to be participating, right? In a way that like just doesn't really happen in like social movements historically. Well, sure, uh, but it's also like a much smaller. You know, we're only talking about two thousand people. And, I guess, but like, and this is mean... like, this is like a, it's a circumstance that really affects all of them, right? Like, there are plenty of things like out in the world, you know, social movements or whatever that may or may not really affect you as an individual, I which guess. is probably why they don't, you know, end up mobilizing. It's just like two thirds of the way through Red Mars, this happens. Two thirds. <laughs> of the, I, I want to say this happens in the other Mars books too. It happens in New York twenty one forty. It happens in Red Moon. Gotcha. Uh, it's just like, like. It's like every single time I read a Kip Stanley Robinson, it's like part of the way through, everybody's going to get really upset about like this untenable social situation and they're all going to like take to the streets and like beat each other up a little bit and then like we're all going to calm down. Yeah, yeah, this totally happens in Blue Mars because it's like more of a peaceful thing. The Martians show up and they like in mass demonstrate even though they're not supposed to. Yeah, anyway, it's like, anyway, yeah. Uh, I think I think it is. I I liked it again. I liked it the first time I read it, but now it's getting old. Right. Uh, and I think there have to be other ways of people. Yeah, like violently. I mean, like what what more often happens, right? Is there's some minority of the population that is really upset about something, 
and then maybe they get violent about it. But the way it's resolved is not that everybody else shows up in force and also gets violent about it. It's that, like, they're either arrested or they're ignored or, some, like, they're sort of folded into a democratic process somewhere. Yeah. So they have this, they have this war, essentially, over whether or not they should go home. Uh, and I, I kind of uh, showed my hand earlier. But what is your take? What would you have voted for? Would you, would you have gone home uh, okay. or would you have stayed and tried to make it work? That's a... You know, it's a funny thing is I didn't even think about that. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't know, you know. Now's your chance. I Yes, now's my chance. You're putting me on the spot. Yeah, but, but it's sort of one of those things where I think that gets to the difference in the way in which we read books. <laughs> is like, to me, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm sort of invested in the story and what, what the characters are, you know, what decisions the characters are going to make. But it never really crossed my mind to think of, well, if I'm in that situation, what would I myself choose? Yeah, I think I think I was just more compelled by the arguments. I mean, I, I didn't like the tactics of the people who wanted to stay. Right. In that they, like, seemed to violate the rule of law and so forth. Although, technically, if you had held, like, a runoff vote, it seems like... So there, there were no, three I, different options. I, I think there was definitely and a majority. And it seems like the majority of people mm-hmm. wanted to stay. Yeah. Um, that, that's and sort it's of surprising gets... that Freya, Freya kind of, like... I don't know. She's like forcing people to leave against the majority's will. Anyway, I yeah. think I think there are like questionable tactics all around. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, but you're it's sort of as a, the reader, you're more sympathetic to Freya, even though I'm not like buying that what she did was great. Yeah, I, I think it's it gets to the idea of like the tyranny of the majority, right? Is yeah. that there's like there in fact there's a clear majority for it's what either um, staying on the ship um, and just trying to live on the ship. Um, and then, uh-huh. you know, maybe go do something else somewhere. Or... There's like, there are, like, a couple other places they could settle. That right. Are kind of devoid of life, and they would have to, like, build an atmosphere really, right. really hard. Right. But there are kind of, like, two separate options that are like that. And it's basically, like, stay in that area, generally yeah. speaking. Or, like, stay in outer space. And the, right. the third option is going back home. Yeah. No good I mean, so, like, one of the things that they get so upset about, which I just don't understand is there's there's the book has a lot of like intergenerational ethics stuff right yeah there's this idea for instance that like i was just gonna say i think that's one of the sort of interesting questions about the book and i think he definitely sort of tips his hand that you know (laughs) it's the it's the ethics over whether you should send a ship out um you know out into the stars basically um, knowing that there are going to be generations of individuals that will have had no choice in in that decision, right? You know, it's essentially like kids have no choice, and that yeah. that's that's what ends up um, annoying Freya so much. I mean, particularly like at the UN when they get back to Earth, um, they go to the UN at a certain point, and there's this sort of debate uh, over whether. Um, whether humanity should continue to, you know, try to spread out in the stars. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And they like, like, I think, I mean, that's the source of Debbie's kind of like always simmering rage. Oh yeah. It's like, she just has this like unending indignation about the fact that, you know, she, she was forced to be born in this life system that was designed by people who didn't think of everything and it is now breaking and it is her job to try to fix it. Otherwise everyone will die. And she was put in this kind of like impossible situation by people who like, like someone made the decision to, to create this situation. It's not like it didn't organically evolve. Right. Um, and 
I I think a lot of that is probably supposed to be somewhat analogous to kind of environmental choices we make on Earth, right? Like I think I think in, in a lot yeah, of ways the I mean, ship is like an analog for Earth, right? Right, um, and that like Robinson's point is that you know there's one Earth and yeah. you know I mean, this is a classic climate there, change argument. There's right? no that, planet B, sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, and you're you're affecting future generations by your choices now, right. and you need to be careful about what you're doing. Right. Um, on the flip side, though, like I don't understand why they could just like not have children. Like, so when they're having this debate about whether to stay or to go home, Freya's like, "Well, if we go home, at least like some of our children might be able to, like, some of our grandchildren might be able to see Earth." And it's like, no one ever brings up the idea that like if you're really worried about it being unfair for children to either be born in space or to like not be born on Earth, like, don't have kids. I guess I mean, um, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. At least for for the way in which he builds the world, it's like in order to get as far as they get in the solar system, you have to have this, you know, years long journey. I mean, maybe it's different now, right? Like at the end of the book, once they've developed this hibernation technology, maybe it's a different world of you know, sort of uh, interstellar exploration. But for like the confines of the book. Um, yeah, I think for the, like, initial mission they were sent on, yes, you have to have kids, fine. Right. But when they're making the decision about whether to stay or go, they act, like, a lot of their discussion is about future generations and how that's going to affect them as though it's a given that they have to have children in whatever situation they choose. Right. Like, either they go back to Earth, like, like why do you, if you think it's so awful to live on this ship, why go back to Earth, have kids so that their kids or their kids' kids can then see Earth? Like, you could just live on the ship until you die not have any children and like solve this problem. Like if you genuinely think it's misery and it's like torture for someone to be born onto the ship, then like, it seems like your ethical obligation is to not have children on the ship, even if their great, great grandchildren could end up on earth. You know what I mean? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> anyway. So, and then, yeah, I think, I think the hibernation could theoretically solve the interstellar travel problem. Uh, once, uh, they're back on Earth, which again, no one really addresses. Frey just gets really upset at the idea that like people are going to be born into these situations without having chosen it. I, I, yeah, I do think that's um, yeah maybe something he doesn't really grapple with is like uh, you know he has this sort of Deus Ex Machina of hibernation to get them back, um, and you know maybe now it's like a totally different game if you can um, hibernate space travelers. Um, right. You know, in the future, ships don't have to be de designed as uh, you know multi generational. Um, vehicles yeah uh now what, what about this um i mean this is this is in line with uh you know whether to stay or go whether to expand in the solar system or not uh you know the at the end of the day his uh i mean it's not an argument but his idea his whole sort of the whole sort of idea of the book is that you know they spend all this time getting uh getting to tau city and it turns out that uh <laughs> you know they can't colonize it because it's alive with a hostile life form and that's yeah. that's sort of the argument is that like in a, pl a planet is either alive or it's dead and if it's alive it's going to be hostile to any outside life form um so yeah what, I, what, what'd you I, think I, about that? I really like the idea in that it's novel Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know that I, it, yeah, it's like an interesting way of thinking about this because most stuff that I've read and people that I've read don't talk about this as a problem, right? You like go to another planet and then it's either like dead and you, uh, 
yeah. terraform it or whatever, right. or right. it's not dead. And then, I mean, generally you seem to encounter intelligent life, in which case you like chat with them and I don't know, right. get killed or set up a mutually advantageous relationship. Right. Um, but I think, I think I think the idea of showing up to a planet, have it, having it be alive with like microorganisms, and then having that be like truly deadly, uh, is very clever, and I like it. I don't think I buy it as like a scientific argument. Mm. Uh, I think, uh, and in fact, I was just reading another book, and one of the comments that was made it focuses a little bit more on microbiology, and one of the comments that was made was like. Uh, local microorganisms and just like life evolves to interact with the life that is around it. And so like, if you are a virus, you have evolved to infect particular hosts. And if you come right. across a host that is not something you involved to right. evolve, it to, might not be able infect, to infect it. It's not right. going to work. Right. Yeah. Like, uh, and so, yeah, if you if you've like evolved to infect mammals, like fish are not going to be at risk from you. Um, and so I think I like, from a biology perspective, that makes intuitive sense to me. I mean, I'm no expert, but so I, I think it's like somewhat unlikely as like a true problem to think about. Uh, but I think it's like, it's very novel and it creates a nice moral lesson about how we can't just rely on other planets to save us from our problems on this planet. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I haven't really thought about it, but there is a lot of, I don't know. Yeah. For lack of a better word, kind of moralism in his work. <laughs> or it's sort of like, you know, this is the lesson, uh, this is the lesson yes. that I want you to take from it. And yeah, I think ultimately the lesson of, uh, Aurora, the book is that, um, you know, we have to save the planet that we're living on. Cause that's the only one that we have. I mean, within the confines of the book, like he's not necessarily saying that like human humanity shouldn't like expand out into, uh, Mars or, you know, the planets within the solar system or the asteroid belt or, you know, things sure. like that. But it's like once you get out, you know, past uh, past that point, that you're going to run into these problems of like ethical problems of you know mm -hmm. what do you do with the children that have no choice in the matter, or you're going to run up into these you know uh, scientific or you know sort of bio biological problems of you get to a place and you can't actually sustain life on it. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that's sort of the way the the book ends, right? Um, I don't know. It's, uh, maybe sort of sappy in a way, or it's like, you know, when she, <laughs> I don't uh, love the ending, you don't, you don't love the ending, the, the whole, the whole ending sequence of them being on earth. I don't love it feels unrealistic. Mm. Like my, my thought the whole time was like, why don't they just make a website and tell everybody about their experience? <laughs> like, I'm sure it would go viral, make a documentary. Like, I don't know. There's, there's this way in which, and this is a broader thing about his work. And I think it's one of the things that enchanted me when I first encountered it is that like, it's very, very high tech, but culturally really, really low tech, mm -hmm. right? So like Freya and her family, their evening entertainment is reciting poetry to each other, right? Right. And there's like something really beautiful about a culture that does that. But realistically, like they are advanced from us. They have all recordings right. of every video ever right. made. Like it's, they would it's, be, it's 400 years into the future. Yeah, they and... would be like binging whatever their version of Netflix is, or like they would be playing VR games, right? Like... Like, realistically, that's not how it works, but I think that's what makes it really beautiful, and I think, like, I like spending time in his world because it is sort of culturally low-tech in that way. Right. Um, or it's like, yeah, I think... even though it's so far into the future, you know, it still seems so familiar in terms of the thing, the activities, right, that they're doing, like, 
the like yeah. non-science activities and stuff like right. that. Right. I mean, if anything, they're kind of retro at this point, right? Like right. no one does that. No, yeah. like, I've never spent my evenings that way. I, I have no poems memorized. Uh, <laughs> and so I think, yeah, there's like, there's like a it's kind of atavistic thing about it. That's really pretty. Uh, and that I like, but I think, yeah, when they get back to earth, it just feels kind of unrealistic that they, you know, just sort of like drop out and then join this, like, you know, it feels very like seventies hippie movement, yeah. right. To like yeah, disengage you, uh... from society. And we're just going to like <laughs> chill on the beach and like yeah. reform beaches. Yeah. And like, that's, I, I get that that's like helping humanity in some small way, but I think that they have an obligation to spread their story more than they do. Mm. Um, and then I think the stuff about her going in the ocean and like experiencing, you know, like a full G of, of gravity and all this kind of stuff is cool. Um, right. I think that her relationship with the kid in the last chapter is like really uncomfortable. He's like 15 <laughs> and he's naked and right. she's like clearly uh, sexually interested in him. Yeah. And he like kind of rebuffs her. Anyway, I just, like, why... That just seemed totally gratuitous to me. Like, she could have just had a nice moment on the beach with or without another human being without, like, having, like, borderline pedophilia happen. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it it definitely comes off as, uh... I don't know, stilted, I guess, or... It's um, creepy. <laughs> yeah, creepy. Um... <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like he wants her, you know, because when she first gets back to Earth, it's like she's terrified, basically. Or, I mean, not back to Earth, like it's her first time on Earth, right? And yeah. I, I think that is an interesting sort of idea. I mean, it's, it's true for all the inhabitants, um, all the ship's inhabitants that make it back. You know, it's the first time on Earth, the only sort of lived environment that they've experienced is, you know, life on the ship. Um, and sort of how, how would that adjustment be? to, um, you know, what is for them, like, essentially an alien planet. Um, but it also, it, you know, it gets back to his sort of whole uh, project, you might say, with the book, is uh, that, you know, ultimately she does reconnect with, uh, you know, sort of Mother Earth. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, finds this, uh, you know, deep connection with the ocean and, um, yeah. uh, and yeah, with I, the planet I, itself. Yeah, I, I do think that's well done. The idea that like humans evolved to be here, and mm -hmm. on a, in some primordial sense, she should really connect with this place. Uh, and also, I think I think yeah, what you were saying about their transition back being really hard. One of the cool things I thought is when they first show up on Aurora and people go out to the planet, they talk about how their eyes are like viewing things at a totally different distance than they've ever viewed them before, because they've never had a horizon. They've never like seen things really far away. It's either right. been like stars from the ship, which are too far away to make sense of, or things that, like, the ship is 10 kilometers at the very maximum. You, right, it's like, from so, length to length, it's like 10 kilometers. Right, yeah. you, you, like, never really see anything that's more than a kilometer away, and so being on the planet was, like, a weird optical adjustment for them. Uh, so I, I think he does a really good job of, yeah, kind of putting you in their shoes as they come to these new environments, and their, like, genuine terror and anxiety about, like, I mean, they have this kind of agoraphobia, because mm -hmm. of how huge Earth is. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, Freya, I, I think, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll walk back my earlier statement about disliking the entire last chapter. I think, <laughs> I think Freya's, Freya's experience of, like, coming to terms with that agoraphobia and, like, reconnecting with the Earth, I think, is well done. Mm -hmm. I think the specifics of the choices their team makes to, like, join the weird hippie beach people uh, and the, like, weird <laughs> stuff with the kid on the beach, I'm not a fan of. But uh, overall, right. yeah, it's like, like there's, there's a poignancy of the ending that is genuine. I mean, it's also not totally clear, like, A, what do all the other, you know, pe the other inhabitants that survive, 
um, what do they end up doing? You know, the, the book ends, um, gosh, it's what, a few months maybe after they've gotten back to Earth? That's fair. I guess they're technically just visiting the beach people. They haven't all committed to work. Right, right. It's not, yeah, it's not exactly clear. Um, but you might, you might be able to say that that's maybe sort of where Kim Stanley Robinson's heart is or, you know, what he thinks is like, uh, yeah, I mean, he's a California boy. Like, (laughs) just like, that's exactly what he's done with his own life. He writes novels and like, right. Hangs out in nature, I guess. Right. Um, Okay, well, having said all that, I enjoyed the book. You know, I I, yeah. I enjoyed listening to it. I think one of the things, so Mark and I have both listened to or read it um, at least like a year ago for me. Yeah, um, it was a couple years ago. Maybe even longer, I don't, I don't remember. Um, but the reason we, we did this episode is more recently you had come across a Reddit thread right, with all these sort of critiques of uh, the book. Yeah. Uh, Which I actually did not revisit in anticipation of this podcast. I forgot to do that. Right. I don't know. But if you but, did. but but I didn't. But but the sort of whole impetus for uh, you know doing a recording about this particular book is that you know we both enjoyed it quite a bit. I think like when we first read it, but you in particular weren't sure. You know, upon rereading slash re-listening to it, you know whether it would hold up um, or not. But I don't know, at least for me, I feel like it held up. Like, I still enjoyed it. I think there's some really interesting concepts um, that he explores. Um, what what did you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, like, the the criticisms in the Reddit thread, which I've now pulled up, uh, <laughs> have, have, like, some, I, I think, are not totally different than my own criticism. The idea that people, like, just turn violent really quickly in a way that seems uh, implausible or that, mm-hmm. like, they have no government on this boat, on this ship, which is a very KSR thing, right? Like, he loves sort of mass participatory democracy slash anarchy as, like, a functioning system. Right. Uh, and, yeah, like, like, like Debbie is technically the head, en- like, she is, she is nominally the head engineer, but technically they're just an engineering group, and they're all, like, equally, you know, have equal authority or whatever. Um, and so I think, yeah, there are ways in which, like, it's not 100% plausible, but I don't think those really bother me i mean there you know i have my criticism i think there are things that the book could do better but i was still really enjoyed reading it and i think it was really thought-provoking still to think about you know the different issues that he brings up about um, ecology island biology interstellar travel um you know the consequences on that stuff for future generations Mm -hmm. um yeah so i i I still think it was a great read it's still probably one of my favorite books of his Mm -hmm. um, despite having read so many others yeah i mean i think you know, at the end of the day, I like it because it does make you sort of think about things, right? Or, you know, um, yeah, like think about things slash I, I think it sort of stayed with me, like as a concept. Um, yeah. You know, like it wasn't, I mean, I hadn't revisited it since the last time that I read it, but I, you know, I, I sort of remember, you know, what are those sort of basic what's the sort of basic plot points and mm-hmm. um, what happens, what are sort of the issues that they're dealing with. I mean, there are definitely things that I've forgotten, but the the whole sort of idea of, you know, having a multi-generational ship, it's taking a really long time to get to a place, things are breaking down, you get to the place, it doesn't work out, and then you have to decide whether to go or back, you know, go back or not. Um, you know, all those sort of ideas, um, you know, sort of stuck with me as like things to sort of think about. Um, which I think is a mark of like a good book. 
you know, yeah. how much that sort of stays. Even if, like, later on, when you're sort of thinking about things, you're like, oh, you know, that doesn't really make sense, or, uh, you know, that's not really believable. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that the, like, skeleton of the story is still very compelling. And it's really just such a fresh take on kind of, you know, classic parts of science fiction, right? That rather than having the starship be, like, a side note, like, that is the focus, is, yeah. like, how do you get from place A to place B with, you know, through multiple generations, which is usually, like, yeah, usually novels kind of gloss over that, or they meet aliens partway through, like, you know, there's something happens that you don't have to, like, really think through, like, wait, wait, but how would that actually work? And right. so he digs into that in a way that, um, you know, is interesting. And then, yeah, the idea that you get to a, a, another planet, and then it's, like, it's just hostile to your form of life, and you have to go home. Uh, that both of those takes were really fresh uh, and I think make it, yeah, make it really memorable. Yeah, I think that's often what, like, good science fiction can do, right? Is that, um, I mean, there's nothing, like, totally, you know, novel about it, like, as a concept. Like, it's still, like, starships in space kind of thing, right? Right, he just focuses on very different elements than other starship in space books. I mean, it's like, um, I was thinking about uh, this in relation to the the three-body problem series. Mm. Right. Um, that there are concepts in that series, too. Um, you know, the idea of the dark forest, right, that, you know, maybe we don't want to be broadcasting our um, whereabouts or, you know, maybe the reason that the universe is so silent is because, uh, you know, <laughs> if you speak up, you die. Basically, yeah. <laughs> you know, ideas like that. Right. Like that basically yeah. had not occurred to me. We're not on my radar. Right. Um, even though, like with Aurora, you know, with the three problem, three body problem books. You know, I think there are, like, narrative elements, there are, like, plot point elements that, like, either don't make a lot of sense or, you know... Are too convenient. Too yeah. convenient. Um, but it's still, like... I guess the, the point being that I think that's one of the most enjoyable things about science fiction is sort of proposing these sort of ideas um, or sort of concepts. Or even, like, Ursula K. Le Guin's stuff. Um, like, The Dispossessed, Right. There are a lot of kind of interesting uh, kind of ruminations on like what, you know, what would government under like an anarchy potentially be like, you know, for right. example. And even and it's similar also because like like in Kim Stanley Robinson's book, there there's this like violent sort of civil war in that book, yep. too, or like violent yep. political movement, which sort of like comes out of nowhere. And you're like, what? <laughs> uh, but at the same time, you know, I still really enjoy that book and like the, the books in that sort of uh, series. Uh, because yeah. because of the sort of more I said more so because of the sort of concepts that they make you yeah, sort of think about. Yeah, they explore really interesting concepts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know, just blathering at this point. Yeah, All maybe right. but yeah, yeah. Between this and Topeka School, very you know, very ideas focused novels. I guess yeah yeah we maybe, need something maybe, maybe that's plot driven next. Yeah, we'll read the Da Vinci Code. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, but I don't know, you know. I thought there were were definitely good parts. Your intro, you had a good sort of intro to, you know, who he was and stuff like that. I thought that was good. Oh, good, yeah. Well, thanks for writing it for me. Yeah, I guess I kind of did. Hey, folks. Max here. Thanks for listening to Champs at the Lit. Thanks to Wes Braver for creating our theme music. In our next episode, we will be talking about The End of the Myth by Greg Grandin. The End of the Myth is a history of American expansion at home and abroad. 
the relationship between Mexico and the United States, and the idea of the frontier in American society from the colonial period to the present day. Please join us for that discussion, and thanks again for listening.